This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Wanted to take just a couple of minutes and continue with something just briefly, because this came out today. And it continues a conversation we were having last night. If you were here last night, we were chatting with the head of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation about funding. And I didn't want to spend the time Scott Bradley Show, weekdays from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900, because every group has now is coming out of the woodwork from everywhere saying we need more funding. Every public group, every medical, uh, seniors, education, infrastructure, everything, every group, prisons, they all are demanding more funding because in order to do the job properly, they need more money from the government. And every one of these groups has a, has a worthwhile, it is worthwhile. We're not dissing any of these groups. They all do good work. They're all doing worthwhile things. We want and need these things in our society. There's no, no dumping on these people and their groups and saying we need more money. But the problem, as we pointed out last night, the problem is where's the, where's the priorities? How do you possibly, we don't have money in this province. We are billions of dollars in debt. And how do you now pay all these different groups and all these different areas? How do you find more money that it doesn't exist so all these different groups can all have the money they say they need? Libraries, we just had libraries municipally, a big discussion about that a couple weeks ago. Everybody needs more money. There's not more money to be had. Well, the Fraser Institute, now the Fraser Institute is a conservative group. And I don't think they would dispute that. I don't think they're going to argue that point. So you can take their position as you wish. You can say, oh, they're conservative and therefore they aren't to be believed. Or you can say, no, they're conservative and I believe them. But here's the thing. When we're talking about what they've come out with, and I believe this because it's basically, these are dollars and cents we're talking about. Using Statistics Canada data from 2015, they have done a study that finds that on average, Government employees receive, on average, 13.4% higher wages than comparable workers in the private sector. If you work for a government somewhere, on average, you're making close to 15% more than the person doing a similar job in the private sector. Plus, it's not just, that's not where it stops, because most government workers have better pensions, exceptional health care, insurance, those kind of things, benefits, all those kind of things, they all add up. And what this, what this study has come out with is saying, look, here's the problem. The private sector generates the, the revenue. It does. If, if you understand economics, the public sector, yeah, they pay people in there, they pay their taxes, but the public sector doesn't create anything. The private sector creates the money. And those people are now being paid less than the public sector, which the taxpayers have to then pay in to keep going. And we want to keep adding more and more money. And the big problem is that most of the people in the public sector now are making more money, or at least on average, more money than the people in the private sector. That leads to an imbalance. We can't continue to do this. That is a huge, huge problem. Government workers retire on average 1.4 years earlier than private sector workers. They're away from their jobs for personal reasons, 60% more days per year 
than private sector workers. It goes on and on and on. We are paying a lot of money to the public sector now. And you know what really struck me as I started to read this? I started to let this thing sink in. And I, again, I, I, it's going to sound like I'm dumping on the public sector. Listen, if you can get it, I suppose good for you. Although I disagree with many of the public sector unions. In fact, I disagree almost completely with the concept of a public sector union. We can have this discussion if you want. A private sector union, you've got the, you've got the owner of the company who's got skin in the game, who is negotiating with the workers. The workers have skin in the game because it's their employer, their, their money, their salaries, but the owner of the company can only give as much money as he or she wants to still keep a profit, if you understand what I'm saying. Whereas the public sector, you're paying with taxpayers' money. You can settle to create political ease. You can settle so that we don't have a strike in transit or whatever else because you don't want to lose votes. And it's not really your money that you're giving out which is why we've got now public sector union employees who are making more money with better wages. And, and some people will argue, no, that's good, Dave. That just means the union's done a great job. Okay. All right. I, I disagree. I think that it's, it's, a, it's an unfair negotiating situation. And, and how you deal with that, I'm not really sure. But it leads me, as I was going through this today, I was realizing, you know what? We, we use a word a lot of the time, which is public service, public servants. I don't know that that word is appropriate anymore. There's no servitude here. There's no servants. Servant implies that you are at the service for people for some sort of philanthropic or good-natured reason. The, the public servants, it's now the private servants, isn't it? The private servants. We're, the people in the private sector are now the one who are serving the government, really, making less money, paying more taxes, I just thought it was an oddity now that we've, we've, we've flipped the tables. At one time, when you were in public service, at one time you were making less money and you were truly doing it because you wanted to serve the public. Now you're, you're, you're making more probably. And we, we have a government, we have a, a society right now where we don't have the money to be able to pay, but we still have to. And now everybody needs more money. And and I understand that they do. We want good health care. We want good libraries. We want good transit. We want good this. We can't afford it. Anyway, we're talking about this last night. And it just struck me as I was reading this. Well, here's the answer. Honestly, here's the answer. And this is what I've argued for for a long time on the show. And I get blowback. And fine, that's fine. You're allowed to have a different opinion. I welcome your different opinion. I love having the debate. I would rather have you have a different opinion and be engaged and passionate than to be apathetic to this whole thing. But I've argued forever that the problem we're facing or one of the ways to solve the problems we're facing is if we have big salaries, lots of money, lots of people on the sunshine list in the public sector, the way we need to resolve this, and we can't get their salaries down, and I'm not asking to get their salaries down because that's already been negotiated. You won that. But we have to start whittling back on the number of people working in the public sector, not by firings, not by layoffs, by attrition. If we're going to be paying more and more and more money to people who are in the public sector, and good for you for getting those salaries, I think the reasonable expectation is that over the next number of years, we should be freezing the number of people who are being hired into the public sector and the people who are there making the really good salary should be doing more. 
And if we have to pay fewer salaries because people have retired or they've left to go get another job and we don't fill those positions, we can then bring the money down a little bit. We can bring some of our costs down and try and make it so that we can start giving some of those extra dollars to healthcare if they need it. Not for just for salaries, but to get the equipment they need or whatever else. It, it doesn't seem to me to be all that complicated. But we don't seem to have any governments that ever want to take a hard stand. And again, this is what we talked about last night with the, the head of the Canadian Taxpayer Federation. Sometimes you have to have a government that is willing to do something that is maybe a little unpopular, that's maybe a little not giving everything to everyone and say, we can probably do with fewer people in the public service. We're not going to lay everyone off. We're not going to fire people, but we're going to allow some jobs to go unfilled after people leave. And if we're seeing if people, in fact, in the public sector actually are making 13.4% higher wages than the average person in the private sector, maybe we need to drop 13.4% of the public sector by attrition over time until it gets down to where it's closer to 50-50. Maybe. But I'm going to have a hard time at any point from here on after reading this referring to anyone who works for the government as public service. Public employment, yes. Public jobs, yes. Public service, service? I'm not sure. That, that, that's, that's stretching it a little bit now. It's, it's not a service anymore. At least not in the sense that it was once described as public service where it was something that you were doing because you really felt a deep calling. It's going to be hard to, for someone to convince me now that it's all about the calling. For some, maybe, but it's going to be hard to convince me. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. We are talking about how horrible violence is in society. There's been a lot of talk in the last few days, for example, about Chicago. I think they had 700 murders last year and 4,000 more people were shot. And it's all, it's all, it's horrible. Violence is a huge problem in our society in North America. And yet when it comes to our entertainment, we run right toward it with our arms out. We embrace it. We love it. We can't get enough violence in our entertainment. And I'm, it suddenly dawned on me. I don't quite understand why. Well, someone who might. Robert Thompson is the, he's a Syracuse University professor, founding director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture. Uh, for nine years, he was professor and director of the uh, NHSI Television and Film Institute at Northwestern University. He is a pop culture expert, a television expert, an author. He joins us now. Dr. Thompson, thanks for doing this today. Thanks for having me. Let's start right with the big question. Uh, why do we say we hate violence and then embrace it so wholeheartedly in our entertainment choices. Well, I think first of all, uh, it, it, that's not necessarily the contradiction that it uh, that it seems. You mentioned how you like The Sopranos, and The Sopranos is one of the great uh, American television series uh, ever made. And I think nearly everybody that watches The Sopranos understands what interesting storytelling was, what a great metaphor for all kinds of things that it was, but doesn't necessarily sanction that this is a, uh, uh, this is a good thing. Uh, and no, he was clearly an anti-hero in that show. That, that's right, and, and most of our dramatic heroes are anti-heroes now. It's the complete flip side of what it was a generation ago. Huh. But this is nothing new. If, if I think some of the, the great literature, the great storytelling, uh, and let's go way, way back, um, 
the Iliad, Homer, is an incredibly violent, epic poem. Not only do we get people jabbing each other with spears, we get detailed descriptions of them going in their eye and coming out their skull. I mean, it is a very, very uh, graphic thing, and that's considered one of the great classics. Um, The Bible, uh, especially the uh, uh, Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, is filled with uh, uh, enormous violence, including global depopulation with uh, uh, Noah's Ark and all of that uh, uh, kind of things, destruction of entire cities, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, And then let's move up uh, uh, further to Shakespeare. King Lear, uh, uh, Macbeth, incredibly violent uh, uh, things. An early Shakespeare play, Titus Andronicus, where they lop off the limbs of an innocent girl and stick uh, 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 branches of trees into the uh, uh, into the wounds. I mean, uh, Crime and Punishment, a violent uh, uh, novel. So I think violence is one of those things that. We are human beings, and we are civilized, and civilization has uh, uh, you know, taken violence as something that is bad, but we're also still animals. Our civilization has evolved quicker than our uh, brains have, and I think art and storytelling uh, continues to explore that kind of thing. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. There have been a lot of masterpieces that have been really violent. Now, I'm not saying that every one of those trailers for movies you saw on Sunday is a masterpiece. Yeah, I'm not sure the Transformers and Shakespeare fall into the same category. So then the question is, why are we seeing so much of these things in big movies and, and TV? And I think number one is that this stuff does remain interesting. That's what we just talked about. But there's a couple of other things, too. The, the high technology that we've now got uh, in making movies and TV, where we can just do stuff that looks so realistic, one of the ways that it's most tempting to use that technology is with violent acts, you know, uh, fast and furious things where cars are coming out of buildings and crashing all over the place, explosions. So the technology allows us to make this look realistic, so we do it. And then secondly, this kind of stuff is really exportable. A lot of the money made in movies is not just box office uh, domestically, it's box office for exports, including exports to countries um, that speak uh, different languages. And a subtle, heavy-in-the-dialogue, intellectually complex movie is a lot harder to export all over the world uh, than, than something where stuff is blowing up. Stuff blows up in every language the same way. <laughs> it's, I mean, that's a fascinating point, and I hadn't really considered the export market. But he, here, here's the part that I, that I don't quite get, though. And, and I, what you said, fascinating about going back to, the, to Shakespeare and the Iliad and all that, but even from a, more, a somewhat more recent, let's go back 50, 60 years. In the 50s or 60s or 70s, we had TV shows that were violent. They may not have been portrayed exactly as violent, but there were cop shows and cowboys and Indians shows and all these things that had violence in them. But we didn't, I don't think, have the same level of violence that we were dealing with in society. Every time we turn on the news, there's something horribly violent. So it, was, it could almost be seen as a bit of an escape or a, a break from our life. Now it seems like it's an extension almost, although it's accelerated. Yeah, I mean, that is an interesting point, and you're right. Until we got into, really to a great extent, uh, in movies, until we got into the late 60s, and in television, much later than that, we didn't see the kind of graphic violence that we see now. 
with, there were war movies and there were all kinds of things, but you, you didn't see the, the level of, uh, uh, of detail. Um, but what was interesting is it's not like during those periods. Uh, so when you watch movies, for example, in the 1940s, let's say the first half of the 1940s, very little really, really graphic violence. You get shot and However, you fall down. Right, exactly. But in the real world, there was a lot of graphic violence. We fought a world war in the uh, early 1940s. So entertainment tended to sanitize what was really going on. People were killing each other in the 1940s. People were doing horrible things to each other. In the 1950s, there were lynchings. There were all of these uh, uh, terrible things happening. And Television kind of made that go away. We can even take go on to the Vietnam War. My favorite example, <clears throat> I don't know if you're old enough to remember an old show called The Andy Griffith Show. Of course. Okay, this innocent, small town, everything was perfect, uh, no violence. Uh, uh, the sheriff didn't even carry a gun, and it was about a sheriff. And it had a spinoff called Gomer Pyle USMC. Yep. One of the kind of hick members of Mayberry went to the Marine Corps. This show played during the late 1960s. We were in the worst years of the Vietnam War. One of the most popular programs um, in the United States was Gomer Pyle USMC during 1968. Terrible year for uh, death in Vietnam, the year of the Tet Offensive and the My Lai Massacre. And here we had a show that took place, for heaven's sakes, in the Marine Corps of the contemporary times, never mentioned that we were fighting a war, never mentioned Southeast Asia. So in many ways, we had this nice, sanitized alternative universe, but it was a complete illusion. It didn't really reflect uh, in any way what was going on. Well, that changed over the next couple of decades, and now we get a sense that uh, uh, sometimes our entertainment is way more violent than real life, depending on what you're uh, uh, comparing it to. I look at the four hugely critical acclaimed, critically acclaimed movies of the past 15, 20 uh, years, or I'm sorry, TV shows. The Sopranos, The Wire, Breaking Bad, and Mad Men. Of those four, the, of the big four, three of them, all except Mad Men, were incredibly violent programs. Uh, but they were also really critically acclaimed. But not only were they, and this is where I guess I'm, I'm puzzled by what we're talking about. And, uh, what you just described, and it's absolutely 100% correct, is that at, for a time when coming out of the war, things were sanitized. Now we have violence in our society, but rather than sanitizing it, we're ratcheting it up another level. Because if you talk about Breaking Bad or The Sopranos, th- the acts of violence are so graphic, are so... Um, uh, in your face, there's no way to escape it. I'm, I'm thinking there was a scene in The Sopranos near the end of the, I think the last season, where Tony Soprano, I won't go into the details, but uses his foot to break another guy's jaw on a table. Uh, if you saw it, you know what I'm talking about. And I'm thinking, wait a second, that that's not an escape anymore. That's something else. And that's where I'm kind of puzzled on this whole thing is how, why do we walk towards the more grotesque now? Why do we walk, why do we want to see that kind of thing? Well, it's true. The, the, the escape, the sanitization, that, that has disappeared, and that's been gone for a couple of uh, uh, decades now. The Sopranos does not blanch away from it. The scene you just described is one, one of the very first scenes in the pilot. Uh, they beat the living daylights out of somebody. And in the final episode, if I'm not mistaken, somebody's head gets run over by a car wheel. Yep. Uh, yep. So, yeah, that was, 
But I think part of it is that we are fascinated by violence. Violence is certainly part of our psyche, hopefully not part of our actual uh, 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 behavior. And art allowed, just like art allowed us to make this stuff disappear in the likes of the Gomer Pyle show I was talking about, it also now allows us to you know, get a uh, a look at the heart of darkness, the kind of stuff that we don't experience. And, of course, if you're going to tell a story about uh, organized crime in New Jersey, if you're going to tell it in any kind of realistic way, it's going to have uh, graphic violence. And part of that is that uh, most of us, I hope, don't experience organized crime uh, up close and personal. And uh, the fiction allows us to, uh, uh, um, you know, to see that in ways that we hopefully otherwise can't. Does this suggest in some ways that our sensibilities have been so dulled that we need this in order to keep our interest now? Like what happens well, if we went that's back? Always an, that's an interesting question. So is the idea that now... Uh, uh, you know, it used to be something blowing up was a big deal. Now it's got to be super spectacular. Once upon a time, a disaster movie was about an earthquake hitting one city. Now we have disaster movies where it takes out three <laughs> and four uh, uh, cities. I suppose part of that is true, that the, the bar keeps changing, and to, uh, to really make us uh, uh, respond and be shocked and all the rest of it, uh, it takes a lot more than it did. And I don't mean to be uh, uh, grim or, or glib about this, but, you know, after 2001, when we spent uh, weeks watching over and over and over again the level of absolute human destruction um, uh, with those terrorist attacks and the buildings going down, it, it, once you saw that, it took a lot to shock you. And we did notice after 2001 Instead of explosions going away in movies, which many people predicted would happen, it was actually the opposite. I think the level of violence and destruction has gone up since then, and part of that could be explained by your theory that uh, uh, it takes more for us to be really, really, you know, get a physical response out of a uh, violent, uh, disaster-oriented uh, film or television show. Just have a couple of minutes left, but I actually get to wonder when I hear about all this, do we, do you get the sense, do you believe that we truly do love or at least are engaged by these violent movies with a lot of the stuff? Or is it largely that Hollywood is just giving us so much of it that we have accepted it and now we're going to find the ones of these that really appeal to us? If, if, if they were to take violence away, and make a bunch of things like Mad Mad Men had very little, if any, violence in it, that, and it was a wonderful series. Would we be just as happy with with those, or do we somehow need this in our edu- in our entertainment? Okay, well, that's a complicated uh, question because you're right. We uh, we don't just watch what we want; we watch what we get, and we try to find what we want among that stuff. So you're right. Uh, you're right about that. Um, and I, I suspect if there were a lot more shows like Mad Men, and there are more and more of them out there that aren't. Uh, the Big Bang Theory is hugely popular. Yep. There's no violence yep. in, uh, in that show. So there are cert- we certainly uh, uh, enjoy stuff uh, that, that, that isn't violent. But maybe it's kind of like, like uh, our culinary desires. Sometimes you want a fine French meal, and sometimes you want a cheeseburger. 
And there's, I think we have a, a, a wide range of desires. I can, speaking for myself, I can say that as much as I'm bothered by the level and the celebration of violence that we see over and over in movies and television shows, I have to say, like the next guy, sometimes when there's one of these movies that are filled with car chases and explosions and uh, uh, bad guys meeting their ends in incredibly graphically violent ways, I'm not going to sit here and say that I don't sometimes find those enjoyable, because I do. I'm not necessarily proud of that. I don't think it reflects the most noble part of the human (laughs) spirit. Um, But it's honest. But uh, But it's honest, and we all would share that. uh, Every now and again, a Fast and the Furious is just what the doctor (laughs) ordered, and I don't know what to say about that. Dr. Robert Thompson, fantastic uh, comments. Really appreciate having you on today. Thanks for doing this. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Um, let me just point out one thing, and he he alluded to it as we go to a break here. There was a list that TV Guide did of the top 60 TV shows of all time. In the top 20, number one was The Sopranos. They listed The Sopranos as the greatest TV show of all time. But of the rest of the top 20, there were only three shows in there that would be considered by most people consistently Violent. The Wire was number six. Breaking Bad was number nine. Law and Order was number 14. All the rest of the shows that fell into the top 20 would not by any stretch be considered violent. And that's why it kind of leads me to believe that a lot of what we're watching and a lot of what we're liking is what we're being fed that if the alternative was there, we would like and enjoy those as much. But it's an easy thing for Hollywood to make a bunch of explosions and car chases doesn't take a lot of creativity for scriptwriters, And as Dr. Thompson said, easy to export around the world. So it's much more money-making. It's a lot easier to make money if we just have stuff blow up and people get blown to bits. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Ticats and the entire CFL schedule came out today. Uh, and I'll tell you what, it is, it is interesting I'll use the word interesting, and I'll bring in Rick Zamperin here, who is the, uh, well, you know Rick Zamperin, he's on here all the time. He's the sports guy, he's the whatever guy here at CHML, he, he does everything around here. But he is the f- local hometown in-house football expert. Rick, thanks for coming in today, for talking hey, in no, today. No problem, you, you uh, must have caught a glimpse of my uh, new business cards that say, whatever guy. Yeah, well, you know what, <laughs> you, that's what you are, though. You're like the jack of all trades around here, you do everything. Um Lots of juicy morsels for the Ticats and their fans. Uh, on before we get into before we dive in on first wide from thirty thousand feet, looking down at the schedule. Good schedule for the Ticats, or ooh, I don't know, schedule for the Ticats. Huh, well, uh, there are some pros and cons. Uh, you know, some of the pros uh, are that you know Hamilton opens against their arch rival, the Toronto Argonauts, in Toronto, which they did last year at BMO Field, and they were quite successful, not only against Toronto, but in that game at BMO. So I think that's that's a plus, or that's a pro. I think another plus for their schedule is that seven of their nine home games are either going to be on a Friday or a Saturday, which is good. Uh, Labor Day is still the prime time. That, that, that could be viewed as a good and the bad. Good well, let's start with that. Let's start oh, with that, sure. because I'm shocked. 
I am shocked that they have another evening game, 6.30, but I mean an evening game for Labor Day because forever the idea was it was convenient for families to come for a 1 o'clock or even a 4 o'clock if you have to and then get home to get ready for school. And this is now the new thing. And I'm, i got to tell you, I'm really surprised they're doing this again. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the con is that, yeah, if you have young kids and you want to go to the game, you know that the first day of school is the next game, so do you want to go to a 7.30 start? You're, you know, out of the ballpark by 9.30 or so if you stay for the home game, probably, uh, you know, at home well after 10, and you know, the kids got to go to bed. On the flip side, you know, if, if you're not attached to any young kids and you're just, uh, you know, uh, thrilled with tailgating all day, that's, you know, <laughs> that, that is prime tailgate, uh, you know, time that you can uh, spend with uh, family and friends and get ready for a 6.30 p.m. start time. So uh, there's pros and cons depending on uh, your family status, I guess. Rick, wasn't it a few years ago the uh, year that the drunken fan climbed up the goalpost and hung by the flag? Was a late that was a as a prime time Labor Day game, and they at that time said, "That's it, no more. We don't want to do this anymore." People, they've had too much time to drink. Yeah, we also had that in Guelph too. I remember the fan <laughs> trying to climb up the uh, the uh, the goalpost and nearly got all the way up. But uh, yeah, and yeah, and that's that's the 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 risk that you take in having you know uh, a night game on a holiday where fans can literally park themselves in a parking lot. Uh, or you know, at a nearby establishment, and uh, and get ready for the game as they see fit, and uh, you know it'll they'll pay the ultimate price the next day or later that yeah. night or, or or the next morning, whatever the case is. But uh, you do run the risk of alienating families with younger kids because, as I mentioned, you know, the first day of school is the next day. That's a big day. Does it happen as much though in the in Tim Hortons Field now as it did in Iverwind Stadium? Uh, it seems to me that the prices of things are up a little bit more there. It seems they're going after a slightly different audience than the hard drinking, hard partying people that maybe Iverwin attracted. It seems that it's a different kind of crowd than it was before and maybe not as inclined to just get completely slobber knockered in the afternoon. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, you're still going to get your hardcore, uh, you know, carry a six or 12 pack to your tailgate party. Uh, 24. Kind of uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, you see a lot more families. It's more of a family-friendly atmosphere. It's a newer venue. Uh, you know, the, the stadium is remarkably different than what it used to be. Uh, you know, there's attractive ticket packages and flex plans that you can take advantage of from a family atmosphere. You have, uh, you know, a bevy of uh, club suites to take advantage of or, or clubs to, to sit in and watch the game, uh, you know, in, in, in a comfortable atmosphere uh, you know, on the hot, sticky months or in the cold winter months. Uh, so it is more, a, a lot more fan and family friendly uh, than it used to be at Old Iverwind Stadium. And one other thing about Labor Day before we move along: um, last year they had the doubleheader with McMaster. Mac is on the road the day before, so Mac is right. not playing. So they're going to do something else. I'm not sure exactly what it is yet, but it won't be a, a CIS or so U Sports, I guess now and uh, CFL right. doubleheader. All right, the week after is the bye week. Yes. <laughs> this, this, now maybe it's just the luck of the draw. Maybe they put the names in a hat and decide when the schedule is going on. But week two to me seems awfully early. And I don't know if there's any benefit to a team to have a bye week that early. Yeah. And you know, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't investigate the, uh, the complete CFL schedule from top to bottom this year, but one team starts the season on a bye week. And, uh, you know, so basically you don't really have an off week during the season because your first week is off. Uh, but for the Ticats, that bye week comes in week number two and also comes 
in week number 10 just before Labor Day. But And, and here's the thing. I mean, you so you start the season against the Argos. If you win that game at BMO Field, you got a lot of momentum. And lo and behold, now you're in, you know, an off week where you've just had, you know, a grueling training camp, a couple of preseason games. You geared up for the season. You play game one, and now you hit the pause button and relaunch into week number three the following week in Saskatchewan at their brand-new facility. So it's a bit of a... Um, almost a false start, really, after after the first game to say, all right, guys, now we get a week off. Um, the flip side of that is their second bye week is week 10, which is before Labor Day. Then they have 10 straight games mm-hmm. before the playoffs. Is that a good Literally, thing? Well, I don't know. You could, you could play 13 straight games if you play those 10, you're in the division semifinal, you're in the division final, and go to the Great Cup. 13 straight games is going to be grueling on, on any team. So, you know, on, on the positive side, yeah, they can build momentum. And, you know, if, if they do get on a winning streak, they don't really want to get any time off. So I can see it that way. But that's going to be tough, especially in, you know, in the in the October and certainly November months when they, uh, when they come around. And especially if you have a few guys with some bumps and bruises that you want to give them a week to heal. Yes, like this team has not had injury problems before. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that, and, that is bound to happen. And also, Rick, you talk about the bye week in week number two, and then you come back, and you mentioned they go to Saskatchewan uh, for the mm-hmm. second game in the new Saskatchewan Stadium. But that starts a streak. That Saskatchewan game is the first of six in a row against the West. They have Saskatchewan, BC, Edmonton, Calgary, Edmonton, Winnipeg. And if things are this year in any way like they were last year, where the West was so dominant, that is a brutal stretch early in the season. And, and I know teams are going to be different this year, but you know, you start against Toronto, they were 5-13. and 13. You're in Saskatchewan after the Biden week, they were 5-13. and 13. And then, as you said, it's almost murderer's row. It's a, a 1927 New York Yankees lineup from yeah. week 4 to week 8. You have, you know, from last year's record, BC at 12-6, and 6, Edmonton at 10-8, and 8, Calgary at 15-2-1, Edmonton again at 10-8, Winnipeg at eleven and seven, and then oh, you pay you play the defending champs who were eight nine and one, but Ottawa, as we all know, won the Grey Cup, so they are forced to be reckoned with. And you know, I think also another pro for this schedule or, or a check mark for the Ticats, certainly the East Division, is that Hamilton will play both Ottawa and Toronto four times this season, including the preseason. So I think that's a big check mark for all three of those franchises. But what would be realistic? I mean, at the end of eight weeks then, because you've got Toronto first, and I think everyone expects Hamilton to beat Toronto in that first game, because Toronto right now looks like a bit of a mishmash. Who knows what's going on there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then you've got seven games, against six against the West, and the defending Grey Cup champions. If you... If you can get to Labor Day eight games in at four and four, I think you're looking and feeling actually pretty good about that this year. I, I would agree with that, especially you know you're, you you could get off to a hot hot start and win your first two against Toronto again, and then against Saskatchewan, who's you know still in that rebuilding mode. But you know you have four games on the road, you have four games at home. So really, if you win all your home games, there's four in the win column. If you lose all your road games, which I don't really see that, especially against the Argos and Riders. Uh, you know, four and four, I think they'd be happy with that. I think most teams going into Labor Day, the unofficial start or the official start to the uh, CFL season, however you, you want to look at it, uh, going four and four into the midweek of the CFL season and ready for that stretch drive, I think most teams would take that, knowing that, you know, there's always a team or two that starts, you know, one and five, one and six, one and eight. Uh, I think the Ticats say, you want to give us four wins? We'll take it. Yeah, you just don't want to be that team coming out of the Western string that uh, that you are that team that's two and six, and all of a sudden it's now dire. And I don't, ex- yeah. I would not, ex- I mean, I would not expect that. Um, 
But man, that is that is a that is a tough stretch. I, I I looked around briefly at other teams' schedules, and I mean, I didn't do a deep dive like I did with the Tie Cats. I can't find another team that has a six or seven week stretch that's that nasty. Yeah, and even in the back half too. I mean, after the bye week number two and going into Labor Day, so you you host the Argos, you're in Ottawa, you host Saskatchewan, and then it's BC, Toronto, Winnipeg, Calgary, Montreal, Ottawa, Montreal. Aside from the last three games. It's not really a, a vast stretch against the East Division. It's kind of back and forth between East and West. But you know, that first uh, seven or eight games of the season is, uh, as you said, it's going to be tough, especially with those games on the road in Calgary and then in Edmonton back-to-back in Week 6 and 7. Um, that's a tough stretch. There are, and I'm a little surprised by this. I don't know if you are or not. There are no afternoon home games this year. and. Mm-hmm. I mean, I believe that probably has something to do with TSN, that they probably want to have the evening games. I, I can understand that. But you would all surprise that there's no afternoons and it's all evenings this year? I don't know if there's a pro or a con to that. I just always, it's sort of always been the way that there's a few in the summertime. Yeah, usually there are one or two, but uh, I think we've seen as the years have gone by and, and TSN realizes that, uh, you know, I think that they had a three and a half percent increase in TV ratings last year uh, from top to bottom in the CFL, which is, you know, a good sign for them. But I think they realized that they get the bigger bang for their buck ratings wise, sponsorship wise, certainly uh, playing a lot more primetime games. I think for the most part, the Ticats have played most of their afternoon games on the road, either in Saskatchewan, which is always kind of a Sunday afternoon, or in Montreal, which they have a Sunday afternoon uh, late this season. But uh, aside from that, yeah, they're all uh, evening games or night games. And, well, I I guess you can count, you know, the season opener is a 4 p.m. start, but by the time they finish, it's going to be at night. So it's almost, you know, an evening-type game. But uh, I think, um, yeah, the the, the network realizes that, uh, you know, the the Ticats are a pretty good draw on TV. Let's put them on night and capitalize that way. Do you think that, that has anything to do, do you, I mean, TSN, obviously, when they're sitting down to come up with the schedule and put their pri- their preferences in place, they have to be considering what teams they think could actually be good, right? I mean, that's yeah. got to oh, be, yeah. that's got to be factored in. So if you've got all these Friday games, because they have four home games, I don't even count how many road games, but they have four home games on Friday night, that has to be a sign that someone thinks that they're going to be worth watching. Yeah, I mean, it's no different than, you know, the NFL with their flex schedule towards the end of the season where they realize that, hey, do we want to show, you know, the, the Cowboys versus the Giants or, you know, Jacksonville versus Tennessee? I mean, it's it's a no-brainer. You're going to put those marquee matchups in those primetime slots, and I think the Ticats uh, have been in the mix, certainly in the playoffs of the last number of years. Uh, Kent Austin has been known to uh, add uh, a headline or two while he's been on the sideline the last Sometimes, yep. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a franchise that uh, yeah, has, has a new stadium or relatively new. They're a team that has a lot of marquee players on their roster. Uh, there's a lot of good things happening here. So I think uh, the Ticats, uh, or deservedly so, um, uh, should be one of those teams that, uh, you know, given those primetime opportunities. Let's move away from the Ticats for just a second to a few other spots on the schedule. Um, Saskatchewan opens the season in Montreal facing Darian Durant. Do you think that was intentional, or was that just a lucky break? I think it's all intentional. Yeah, there's there's no doubt about it. It's no different than uh, Calgary-Ottawa meeting in weeks. Yep, uh, you know, one and two. two. But 
Daring Durant, uh, you know, he and Chris Jones obviously did not see eye to eye when it, when it came to contract negotiation time. And, and Jones being the grand poobah in Regina now saying that, uh, hey, Darian, thanks for your service. We're going to move in a different direction. Uh, we'll, we'll cast you off to uh, the Alouettes. And there's no doubt in my mind that the CFL uh, schedule maker said, we have to make this happen for game number one. It's going to be Montreal and Saskatchewan. Um, the only thing that would have been better would, you know, if that game was at Mosaic Stadium. So, um, it, you know, it, it'll be in, in, an interesting matchup. The storylines are, are already writing themselves, but uh, obviously Darian Durant, not the same player that he was uh, three, four, five years ago, but still at, uh, you know, 33, 34 can get the job done. If he can stay healthy. If he can stay healthy, yeah. And, you know, that's a huge one. Again, jumping back to the Ticats for a second, he has had trouble staying healthy. And the interesting thing is that they, the Ticats play Montreal in the third last game and the last game of the season. And there is, I would say, at least a 50-50 chance that Darian Durant is not in the lineup for those. The Ticats may catch a break by the time they roll into Montreal. It's a good bet. The other, the other side of that is uh, Darian Durant gets hurt early in the season <laughs> and comes back at the end of the year. <laughs> But we do know that Rakeem Cato won't be in Montreal. He was released by the Alouettes, so uh, they won't see Cato on, on the schedule. But, yeah, I mean, Darian Durant, uh, he's had a you know, fantastic career. But over sure. the last you know, two, three, four years, he has been bitten pretty hard by the injury bug, whether it's you know, Achilles or something else. Uh, but, uh, you know, credit to him. He's back on the field, uh, got back late last year with the Rough Riders, and uh, uh, let's see what he can do uh, uh, with the Alouettes. What game, other than Ticats, or maybe you can do Ticats if you want, but what game jumped out of the schedule at you that you really, really are intrigued to see? Was there one? Well, as far as the Ticats are concerned, obviously, you know, Labor Day also, you know, always kind of steps up. But, you know, the, the games against Ottawa, whenever the defending champs come to town, I think is always interesting. And uh, it's only going to be one time in the regular season that the Cats will face the Red Blacks at Tim Hortons Field, and that's just before the bye week before Labor Day. But apart from that, I'm really interested and rather intrigued at the fact, I alluded it, uh, to it before, Calgary and Ottawa in weeks one and two. So the two Grey Cup combatants who met in the final game last year are going to be in the first game, at least for their schedule, this year. And then their rematch comes in week number two. We've, we've never seen that before, and certainly the, the Stamps have never seen that before, uh, in which the defending champs meet in week one and again in week two, and then they won't face each other again unless they meet in the playoffs. Uh, but that, uh, I think, uh, really caught my eye. The one I'm looking forward to, and it's not really for the game, to be honest with you, is week two when Saskatchewan opens their new stadium. If you've seen, I mean, I know you have seen the pictures and yeah. seen some video of that. If there is a palace in the CFL, that's it. Yeah, and it's against Winnipeg. So, yeah. I mean, uh, they could have held it against any other team. It's going to be sold out. There's no doubt about it. But, you know, to have the Blue Bombers there, there are rivals. I think it's going to be all the more special. All right, got a couple minutes here. Before we let you go, going to jump out of the CFL for a second into the NFL. I'm going to pick up a conversation I was having last night, but I want to get your thought on it. And it revolves around that overtime in the NFL, the overtime rule, because it's been a big point. It's been a big point of discussion, even though it's been overshadowed by the fact of the collapse of the Falcons or the great comeback of the Patriots, whichever way you want to look at it. NFL overtime rules, very different from CFL in college. Atlanta never got to touch the ball in overtime and lost the Super Bowl. Do you like the NFL overtime rule, or do you take issue with the NFL overtime rule? I, I don't like the, the overtime rule for the simple fact that what happened on Sunday. I mean, you win the coin toss, uh, and, and full credit to the Patriots, not only for coming back, but uh, for taking advantage of having that first possession 
and scoring a touchdown to end the ball game. I mean, Atlanta could have stopped them and, and uh, you know, forced them into a field goal position or, or a punt situation, and the Falcons could have won it on the next score. But I think the NFL has to say, you know what, if Team A wins the coin toss and they, and they, and they do score a touchdown, let's give Team B the opportunity to at least score a touchdown and continue on this game. And if they don't do it, then Team A, who, who did uh, get to, into the end zone, wins the ball game. And uh, I think that adds a little more drama. Can you imagine the New England Patriots score a touchdown? Uh, I think you would have to force the, the team to go for two points, uh, whether they make it or not. Now you give the ball to Atlanta to say, all right, Atlanta, uh, you know, the drama is on. Uh, you have to score to tie this ball game. I think that it just would have added so much more especially to a championship final. Oh, but come on, Rick. If Atlanta then goes down and scores a touchdown, everyone's going, oh, come on, i got to watch this for longer? <laughs> of course they're not. This is the greatest drama that you could create. What I don't understand, and maybe you have some idea, maybe you understand it better, I don't understand what the problem is. I don't understand why you wouldn't do this. I, just, I simply, I've been trying to figure out what's the downside to saying the other team just gets a chance with the ball. What, what would be the reason why you wouldn't do that? I haven't got a clue, and I know they tweaked the overtime rules uh, a few seasons ago in which, you know, you won the coin toss, you kick the field goal, you won the ball game, and they changed it to if you win the coin toss and you kick a field goal, okay, then the other team does have an opportunity to either tie and continue this overtime, which we've seen, or score a touchdown and win the ball game. I think I think it's an absolute must that you got to give both teams a chance to get the ball on offense and uh, and try to win. Now, that said, do you then like playing regular football that way, or do you like the CFL's way of doing it with the, what do you want to call it, the shootout or whatever it does where you start at the 35-yard line? Which one is better then? I say you play regular. You kick the ball off. You uh, throw it and run it from wherever you are scrimmaging after that kickoff, and, and, and you just play like a regular game, only it's uh, obviously in overtime. See, the only way around it, and i got to tell you, Don Robertson had an ingenious idea here last night, and that's rare for me to say, um, <laughs> which was this. If you insist upon the current system that says that you, whoever scored, if you score a touchdown first, the game ends, if, that, if you insist that that's the way it's going to work, then you should not have a coin toss anymore. Whoever has scored the most touchdowns in the game should get the ball to start. Hmm. You should at least reward success during the game. There should be a, you know, rather than a safety or a few field goals or whatever, if you've at least had success that way, you should get some kind of benefit. But again, and I thought that was a great idea, but I still don't understand what the problem would be just saying, all right, now it's your turn if you don't score game over. Yeah. I just don't understand. Yeah. I I don't mind the whoever scores more touchdowns scenario, but if you've scored the exact uh, same amount of touchdowns, then what do you do? I mean, well, then you're, gonna, you're probably going to score the, the same number of field goals as well. Um, maybe you go with, uh, you know, whose eyes are bluer at the, you know, the coin toss. <laughs> I, I have no idea. Have a cheerleader right, dance off at midfield. <laughs> yeah. I think the right answer is you got to give, you know, you got to give most teams equal opportunity to win the ball game. I, you know, I'm glad to hear you say, I, I actually heard someone today make a valiant case against it, that it was fair the way it was because there are three facets to a football team and so it doesn't really matter it's your facet against their facet and to me both these teams got into this Super Bowl their defenses were good but their offenses were great and so New England got to put their best facet on the field not against Atlanta's best facet of the game which made it unfair and that's that. That's the big problem yeah. for me. Is if you have two great offensive teams with moderately okay defenses, it's not really fair. Whoever gets the ball first, I, I completely agree. I think you have to give both teams 
an opportunity to showcase your strength, and, and that strength might be defense, and that's fine. So you stop the other team, and uh, you know you try to make hay with your offense. But uh, I think uh, you know this should give the NFL uh, a bit of a boost to say, hey, maybe we should tinker with our OT rules again. The, the NHL is uh, there's no question about it in the, in the next two to three years there's no question in my mind that the national hockey league is going to say you know this shootout thing we're going to take an, uh, another look at it not that they're going to scrap it but they're probably going to say hey we're going to have our superstars go time and time again a la the jonathan taves and the world juniors from years gone by and i think it's you know imperative that leagues look at the way they are implementing their rules to say are we doing this uh, the best way we can i think the nfl overtime rule is uh, certainly going to change We'll take up soccer next time. We'll be here for seven hours. <laughs> Rick Zamperin, always appreciate the time. Thanks for the insight tonight. You got it. Take care. That is uh, Rick Zamperin of CHML. You will hear him all the time if you keep your channel, keep your radio tuned in to 900 CHML. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Now, you've heard that over the years, dictionaries adopt words that are used in the popular culture as they get used more commonly. So they become more than just really out there slang and more and more people use them. So they become part of the conversation. They get adopted as actual words. It gives them credibility. I don't know that those who use the words feel some sort of vindication or something. In fact, I think probably the opposite. I think a lot of these words were done intent were used intentionally to be different, to be cutting edge, to be out there. And now that these words have achieved some sort of mainstream acceptance, they'll probably never be used again. We'll have to find something else for them because it's not cool to to use the words that the man says is okay to use. Nonetheless, Merriam-Webster, the dictionary company, added a thousand new words to its dictionary today. So guaranteeing that you must go out and buy their 2017 edition, because if you don't, you won't be up on all the latest words. But Will and I are going to go through some of the new words that have been added to the Merriam-Webster dictionary, and you can play along at home. I'm going to be asking Will, I'm going to give him a word and see if he can tell me what these words mean. All right, Will, are you ready? You up for this? Oh, yeah, I'm ready. All right. Some of these are going to be really obvious. Some of these are going to be super easy because we do hear them a lot. Other ones are a little more out there. And some of them, I got to be honest, there's four or five of them in here that I can't believe they are just now being added to the dictionary because I've used these words since high school. When I was in high school, I don't know what took them so long. Maybe they don't do this every year. Maybe they wait for five generations or something before they add a bunch. But anyway, abandonware. Any idea what abandonware is? Uh, would that be um, something you're going to use only once and then ditch, like maybe a burner cell phone? Almost. Almost. It's software that is no longer sold or supported by its creator. Aww. So you've downloaded something and now it breaks down and you call or you go online to their email and they say, no, we don't support that anymore. That's abandonware. Here's one. This is one of the ones I'm talking about. I use this next word in high school and it's just now being added. Airball. It's a basketball term. Yeah. If you shoot the ball and you miss the net and miss everything completely, you yell, air ball, and you look like a, you make a jerk of the guy, and you mock him by screen. That's now just being added. But yes, it's it's now officially a word. Here's an easy one. Binge watch. That's where you get hooked on like watching all of Breaking Bad in like a weekend. Exactly. And that's now an official word. If you use that in your English paper, the teacher, the professor can no longer say that's not acceptable usage. It is acceptable usage. It now is. Um... Okay, a boo-hoo. 
that wasn't in there, but that's like mocking someone for feeling bad. Well, just... to 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 weep loudly, to really make a, a, a big show of your sobbiness. A dramatic. Uh, exactly, a dramatic flourish, a boohoo. Um, Conlang. This one I didn't know. Conlang. Break it down. Con. As in. I'm thinking convict. Not quite. Not quite. As in like a con job. So it's not real. Con lang is an invented language. You're conning someone with a language that doesn't really exist. Con lang. But what if the Merriam-Webster dictionary then takes some con language and then makes it legitimate? Does that destroy con lang? Con lang would be the linguistic equivalent of fake news. All right. So that's what that is. I had never heard that one before. I love it. Uh, oh, here's one that I'm sure comes up in everyday conversation. CRISPR, but it's not CRISPR like the word. It's an acronym, C-R-I-S-P-R. I have never heard of it. Let me read you the definition because I know you'll want to drop this into your everyday conversation tomorrow. A segment of genetic material found in the genomes of prokaryotes that consist of repeated short sequences of nucleotides interspersed at regular intervals between unique sequences of nucleotides derived from the DNA of pathogens which had previously infected the bacteria and that functions to protect the bacteria against future infection by the same pathogens. Did we need to add that to the dictionary? Like, has anyone ever used that word? There's, of all the words, has anyone ever dropped that into a conversation and said, oh, yeah, the CRISPR? Whoever does use that word is probably so glad that now CRISPR can just be used in place of the description. That's actually probably true. That's true. Now, because that is an awful lot of breathing to do to get it out. Now you can just say CRISPR. So just in case, let me repeat it again, because I'm sure that all of you, no, I'm not going to repeat it again. If you really want to use that in conversation, go look it up. C-R-I-S-P-R. I can't believe that there could possibly be a scenario in which we would need to use that at any point in our life. But anyway, um, let's see here. Oh, here's another easy one. EpiPen. Yeah, the tool. That's what you you use when someone's having an allergic reaction. Exactly. A severe one. Yep. That's now officially a word. Didn't know it wasn't a word before, but E-V-O-O, all capital letters, an acronym. If you talk to someone and say, yeah, hey, I'm going to make my pasta with EVOO today. I, Extra virgin olive oil. What? But do we need an acronym for that? Because extra virgin olive oil, olive oil everyone knows what that means. If I say, I'm going to, I need a, a, go to the grocery store, I need a bottle of EVOO. I'm actually thinking that's something like that you get in the body products department or something. I'm thinking something that you clean tiles in your washroom with. Either one. It does not sound to me like something that's delicious on pasta or in other places in food. Uh, okay, here's one that, um, again, I, I, I suppose that I thought it was already something, but face palm. Embarrassment or yeah. the act of embarrassing yourself. Yeah, uh, you, you know, you bury your face in your hand and, uh, oh, I can't believe I did that. Yeah, face palm, easy. Uh, fast fashion. Fast fashion is basically coming up with uh, trends that are cheap and available to consumers. So any kind of hipster stuff that, you know, you can throw together and make it look like it's uh, supposed to be fashionable, I suppose, falls into that category. Um, first world problem. That one's that that should be obvious. Something that's considered not not of another world's problem. Well, it's, it's it's something like you know my my iPhone is not getting good enough service, and it's like yeah okay, but you know people in Africa are starving. That's a first world. You have a first world problem. It's not really 
that big, a, relatively speaking, in the grand scheme of yeah. things. I got, I got one. A friend of mine once had a bag with uh, too many donuts in it. He said, too many donuts. I can't finish these donuts. And then he first you know, world problem because it was, a fa- <laughs> it was a first world problem. I wonder if they were EVOO donuts. Or if perhaps they were covered in CRISPR. Again, I still don't know what that means. Uh, here's another one that I thought for sure would already be a word. Although I guess that they, I'm guessing the Merriam-Webster people probably were not athletes. That's why they're doing dictionary stuff. And so they're just catching up on their, you know, these were the nerds who were doing all the linguistics, not the sports in school. So five hole is now just being made an official word. Like everyone in Canada knows what the five hole is, right? It's the, between the goalie's legs, you shoot it, you aim for the five hole. How does, how is that not a word yet? But I'm guessing the Merriam-Webster people were probably, somebody from Merriam-Webster was at a dinner party and someone put on a hockey game and you heard the five hole and he goes, five hole? What's the five hole? Never heard of the five hole. And someone explained it to me. He goes, well, that must be a word now. We must put that in. How do you not have five hole already in the dictionary? But now, after how many years of using five hole, now it's officially become a word. Uh, FLOTUS, an acronym again, F-L-O-T-U-S. First Lady of the United States. Like POTUS, President of the United States. And later on, we're going to get to S- to SCOTUS, which actually almost sounds like a body part, but it's not. It's Supreme Court of the United States. All right? So you, there's no R in there. SCOTUS might be something different. We don't want to go there. I don't know what that's an acronym for, but SCOTUS is, is different. Um, to geek out. Geek out is now a word. What, what, word, what does that mean? Well, I think that's what a lot of listeners who are already fans of the Merriam-Webster Dictionary <laughs> are, are doing, doing right, right now. now. Honestly, a little bit of me as well. I'm geeking out over this. This is awesome. Geek out. Uh, okay, to uh, ghost. Not in, the, not in the sense of Casper the friendly ghost. Not a noun. This is a verb ghost. That's where you just stop responding to someone. Cut off all contact with them. You become a ghost. They're texting you and you're trying to go to sleep or they're texting you stupid stuff and... You just say, oh, forget it. I'm not going to carry this on anymore. So I ghost them. I'm just, I'm gone. I've become a ghost. Uh, ginger, not the food. The red-haired people. Red-haired people, yes. Now that is officially, see, now you've got multiple uses for ginger. Uh, here's one of my favorites. This is my one of my two or three favorites on this whole list. Humble brag. Ooh, that's a good one. Do you know what a humble brag is? Yes, I do. It's a... Uh, it- <laughs> I feel like you want to explain it. No, go ahead. Okay, humble brag is when you find a way to work a brag into a conversation where you're you're supposedly, uh, you know, acting humble. You're saying, oh, well, I didn't, you know, it was nothing. All I did was, you know, just... Save their life. Save someone's life or, while producing the Scott Radley show. <laughs> and, and, yeah, I, I know. It's nothing amazing. It's nothing amazing. Oh, did I tell you, by the way, I, I actually won something more than a coffee and a roll up the rim? That sort of thing. See, but see, humble brag, winning more than a coffee and roll up the ring, I don't think is a humble brag. That's just sort of a, but it's, yeah, you're right. It's when, oh, I got to tell you, I'm so humbled by the fact that I was given this award. <laughs> no, you're not humble. As soon as you mention the award, you're no longer humbled by it, right? You're no longer humble. It's, it's, I'm, I'm, I might be the most modest person in the world. Yeah, that's a humble brag. When you're pointing out, well, that's also a, an oxymoron, but when you're pointing out just how, well, you put yourself down basically to point out how great you are so that someone's going to catch on and give you a compliment. It's, it's, it's the ultimate fishing for a compliment, really, is what it is. Um, a listicle. 
an article that's comprised composed mostly of uh, of just a list of things uh, yes. like this. Uh, a microaggression. This is another one of my favorite ones because it's the most annoying thing ever now that we are dealing with microaggressions. I I actually think they can exist in some form, but I believe the term just means like a, a small slight or something that across a, a long span of time can be part of an accumulation of something someone's feeling uh, aggressed upon. Yeah, let me use the actual definition that they've used because I think this is really good. A comment or action that subtly and often unconsciously or unintentionally expresses a prejudiced attitude possibly towards a member of a marginalized group. So in other words... I may say something entirely benign, but if you interpret that in a way that would be negative towards you, it's a microaggression. I clearly made no effort to be aggressive or offensive towards you, but you've taken it that way. And as you say, these things add up and you, it just shows that I am, by these benign, nondescript things, I am a racist, sexist, on and on and on because I said these microaggressions, even though, as it clearly says, it's un- unconscious or unintentional. Yeah, I think it's something that more like reads the pulse. Well, it's, you know what the microaggression, honestly, it um, usually, even though it doesn't say it in this definition, my feeling on this, it says more about the person who's being microaggressed than about the person who's saying it. I, I could see that. They're walking around with a chip on their shoulder waiting for someone to say anything that will validate their feeling that someone has something against them. And you said that, oh, that's, that's offensive. Let's continue. We only have a minute or two left here and there's a lot more to get to. Um, net neutrality. Mm. The idea that everything on the internet should be equal, that there should be no politics one way or the other. Um, NSFW. Not safe for work. Don't, if it's something says NSFW on your computer, on an email, do not open that at work or you may see something offensive and the person behind you may see you opening it and then you'll get in all kinds of trouble. Uh, photobomb, a new word officially in the dictionary now just showing up in the background of someone else. Yeah, yeah, someone takes a picture and you pop up. Uh, ride shotgun. How is ride shotgun just now going into the dictionary? Shotgun, called it. We've been doing that since, what, 1960? Since the, since the Model T Ford rolled out of Henry Ford's factory, the first guy yelled, shotgun, got it. How is this now going in the dictionary? Sitting in the front seat beside the driver. Um, very quickly here, what else do we have here? Uh, this one I've never even heard of before. Maybe you know it. Snollygoster. No, never heard never of heard it. Never heard of it? A shrewd, unprincipled person. Uh, okay, throw shade. Um, that's like snarkiness. Yep, fair enough. Train wreck. That again, how is train wreck not already in there? It's a, just a complete disaster. Something that's a complete mess of something else. Uh urgent care. Really? Just That's going just in now. Just going in now. Walk back. I, I don't know. You don't know walk back? Walk back is if I say, you know what, Will? I hate your hair. Your hair looks stupid. And then you go, really? I go, no, I was just, you know, not really. You're just, you, you say oh. something and then you sort of back off and you try to, and I don't hate your hair, by the way. I don't hate anybody's hair. Look at my hair. I, I have no right to say anything about hair. But no, it'd be sort of saying something and then pulling back from it to not really stand by your your comment. And two more. The the Wayback Machine. Did it, does this need to be in the dictionary? This one's one I don't even know if it needs to be in the dictionary. But anyway, the Wayback Machine. Yeah, that's the time machine uh, Peabody and Sherman used in the old Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoon. <laughs> All right. And finally, um, Weak Sauce. 
I think that's someone who's not being genuine. Yeah, ineffective. In someone who's inferior or ingenuine or ineffective. Yeah, it's um, anyway. There are. I'm not going to go through. We're out of time. But there are a thousand words like that that are now in the dictionary. So again, be sure you go out and buy your new Merriam-Webster dictionary with all the new words, and then spend your vacation time reading the dictionary because. Well, what else would you want to do with your free time than to read the dictionary and drop in words like CRISPR? Should I read the definition? No, I will not do it. Go look it up if you if you need to be right. C-R-I-S-P-R, the stupidest dictionary definition of all time ever now in the dictionary. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900. AM 900 CHML.